Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Thirteen academic and corporate thinkers have received awards from NASA to develop ideas for transforming future missions. It's the latest part of the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. Here with more, Program Deputy Executive John Nelson. John, good to have you. Thank you for having us. This is fantastic. And Acting Program Executive Mike LaPointe. Mike, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. And the program itself, I guess you call it NIAC, the basic program, NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, that is not new, right? You've been doing this for a number of years. Uh, That's correct, actually. It was reconstituted in 2011 as a NASA program. And so it's uh, it's been around for a while. John and I have been uh, involved with it for the last couple of years. Kind of came on as the acting PE uh, a couple of years back, and John came on uh, about a year ago last October. All right. And looks like a challenge grant type of program where you give small amounts of money to a lot of people to develop ideas. Is that basically how it works? Uh, it is. It's uh, actually a three-phase program, and I'll let John talk about it in more detail. But basically, phase one is a uh, projects that we'll talk about today is our initial, basically a feasibility study. It's a nine month, 175K uh, technology development effort. Basically a study to tell uh, tell NASA why your idea is a good idea that we should pursue. And then after that, we have a phase two, uh, which is a two year, 600K, uh, more of a viability study to put more meat on the bones of the concept. And then phase three, which is very rare. Uh, we do basically one of those years, uh, a $2 million, two-year effort to really advance the technology. So, John, any more you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I'll just add that while we do have three phases and, and you know, phase three does involve some actual technology development, you, you have to remember, put this in context, this is all very early stage stuff. So unlike a lot of technology development programs, we're not looking at a mission that's five years out or often even 10 years out. We're looking at capabilities that don't currently exist, visionary, truly transformative ideas that may not come to fruition for 20 years or more. In some cases, a lot more than 20 years. So that's why we start with that that small phase one feasibility concept. We don't expect all of these ideas to work. Uh, We're exploring whether or not the idea has any feasibility at all and is worth further development. And when you launch a round, just for example, like the one you just awarded, do you focus on a particular area, for example, going to Mars or sustaining human life or looking back down at the Earth or just anything that might be useful to NASA? That's, that's exactly right. It's, it's a wide open call. Uh, we are actually open to anyone in the U.S., any organization, academia, uh, other government agencies, individuals that, uh, that are registered with SAMTIGov. But it's a wide open call. Any, any technology area that's of interest uh, for future missions to NASA that could help us do our job better, we're interested in hearing about. And how do you spread the word so that the right people will know about it? So that's a good question. We have a, a very good network of folks out there that have already applied, and, uh, and they spread the word a lot for us. Uh, we also do a uh, solicitation every year, which is also posted in FedBizOps. The synopsis uh, comes out in FedBizOps. A lot of press that we get each time we, we do a uh, phase one call or a phase two call, and that helps uh, spread the word for us as well. And Kathy Riley, who I believe is still on board, is our uh, strategic outreach and communications manager, and she does an outstanding job of spreading the word for us. Yeah, because you don't want to just be in FedBizOps because then you'll get the usual contractors, <laughs> fair to say. <laughs> Absolutely, we we are we are uh, we we have a, a really good presence on the NASA website, and I should mention too that we do have a website that lists all of our prior studies, as well as all the key dates and a lot of information about the program. So your listeners are more than welcome to visit the site. 
any particular exciting technologies that have come to fruition and were deployed by NASA that you can point to in the past? We have. John, you want to take a first shot and I'll follow up? Sure, sure. So again, we're focused on really long-term stuff. But that isn't to say that there can't be near-term applications or spinoffs. Uh, we've actually got one that's getting ready to fly, in, uh, hopefully in March, scheduled for March. So the idea was originally a large inflatable reflector balloon that could be used as a telescope. And this was from Chris Walker, uh, University of Arizona, and Free Fall Space. Well, he and his students took that idea and shrunk it down to basically a, high, a large aperture uh, antenna for CubeSats. And they're actually testing that in space, uh, again, hopefully in March. Uh, so that's one example, but we, we've had many others as well. Mike? So that, that's the one that's coming up uh, soon. We've had a phase three program project called uh, from TransAstra to look at uh, optical mining of asteroids, where they would go out and actually capture an asteroid and use intensely focused uh, solar energy to mine the volatiles off an asteroid, which of course is very far term. But as a spinoff of that, that uh, asteroid capture process can be used, and they're looking at it now as, uh, through an SBIR to, uh, for orbital debris remediation, to go out and actually capture orbital debris and, and bring it back into the atmosphere. So uh, things like that. Um, and, and one of the things we also point to, uh, as we all know, Ingenuity flew its last flight on Mars uh, just recently. But that actually was inspired by an IAC program, the original IAC, uh, or an IAC uh, concept in an original IAC program. So we, uh, we like to take credit for that as well, where one of our prior PIs uh, did a study on rotorcraft on Mars and on Titan. And uh, the PI for Ingenuity uh, happened to attend the talk that he was giving and realized that, hey, we really could do a rotorcraft on a helicopter on Mars, which led to the Ingenuity project. So, Yeah, that was kind of famous, that little tiny helicopter. I think it just finally yeah. gave up the ghost recently, right? It did, just the other day, yeah, his last <laughs> flight. 72 flights. It was pretty impressive. All right. We're speaking with Mike Lapointe. He is the acting program executive, and John Nelson is deputy, deputy executive for the NASA Innovative Concepts Program. In this latest round, you've given 13 awards. What are some of the highlights? John, you want to lead us off? Sure. i tell you what. Uh, since we were talking about ingenuity, let's talk about uh, Flight on Mars. So we just funded a project called Maggie. This is for basically a fixed-wing, solar-powered plane, vertical takeoff and landing, capable of going, I think it's something like 180 kilometers per flight, that could make it all the way around Mars and give us global access for scientific study. So basically taking the idea of ingenuity and, and just running with it in terms of access to, to the planet. And there, there have been uh, studies on fixed-wing aircraft on Mars in the past. It's extremely difficult because of the, the very thin atmosphere, and most of those concepts were really huge and, and had a lot of challenges. And th there'll be certainly a lot of challenges with this, but the design they, pro they proposed has promise, and we hope that it shows feasibility. Yeah, what did the engineers say? If you apply enough thrust and control the angle of attack, you can fly a barn door, but maybe not so much on <laughs> Mars, right? <laughs> not on Mars, yeah. All right, so that's a good one. A couple of others we can hear about? Well, closer to home, uh, we're funding something called a lightweight fiber-based uh, radio frequency antenna. These are used for earth science applications. Uh, in this particular case, it would be used for uh, looking at uh, soil moisture. And the reason for that is, you know, once your ground gets saturated, additional runoff causes floods and such, as well as on the opposite side of that, you can have a very low soil moisture content with drought. So this is a way to map uh, soil moisture content uh, around the earth. 
And the idea here is that it's a very long, extensive fiber-based array, which is which is new. Uh, it's very difficult to get long extensions in space from you know a confined payload. But this is a way to actually use a fiber with an embedded antenna to roll out and get a really long baseline that you can do extremely accurate measurements uh, for soil moisture, as well as things like sea salinity and other as aspects of it. So earth science application there. Going the other extreme, uh, we have uh, funded a concept to fly out to Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri uh, with a swarm of very small PICO satellites, ground-based satellites. You know, this has been looked at through Project uh, Starshot, where you use like gigawatt-class lasers to fly these very, very, very small payloads out to, out to the nearest star. The challenge there is you don't get much communication back, right? You're at a very far distance, and these things are very power-limited. But if you fly a swarm, you can actually do a coherent signal back. And so the idea here is you fly a bunch of them, uh, you get out there, you assemble on the way a nice coherent swarm of these little tiny satellites. And when they get there, they do their sensing, and then they actually put an optical uh, signal back to Earth that you can pick up with an Earth-based telescope. Well, that one, just to delve in a little bit, Proxima Centauri is, that's the nearest cloud, nearest star or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, how long would that take? So light takes about 4.2 years to get out there and, and about 4.2 years to get back. So they're going to fly these at about 20% the speed of light. So it'll take about 20 years to get out there, and then it'll take about four years to get their signal back. 20% of the speed of light? That's pretty fast. That's why you, why you need a 100-gigawatt laser. <laughs> yeah, it really it's, it's, it's like, this is not one that's 5 or 10 or even 20 years out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a little further out. Well, at least but, you can reasonably assume to live to see the results as opposed to absolutely. going to somewhere much further away. And then one of the awards went to someone from NASA's Glenn Research Center, Jeff Landis, uh, something mm -hmm. that can survive Venus, which is pretty hot. That's a really interesting mission. It's uh, basically a balloon floating in the atmosphere and an airplane that will go down, pick up a sample, a surface sample, not just an atmospheric sample, bring it back up to the balloon, which has a rocket attached, transfer the sample to the, to the rocket canister, and then fire the rocket back so we can actually get a sample return from Venus. It's a really interesting way to do this. It's complex, but it's, which makes it very nyaki, and it'll be the, the first time we can actually get a sample back from the surface of Venus. And I guess a final question on all of these, how many would you get for a round that you would narrow down to 13? And what are your criteria for thinking, well, this one could possibly work? So every year we get around 300 ideas uh, for, for phase one. It's a two-step process. So those 300 are what we call step A proposals. It's, it's typically just a chart, summary chart, and four pages of description. And based on that, we look at whether or not it's in scope for NIAC, because as I'm sure you've gathered, NIAC is different from a lot of other science technology programs and programs within NASA. We're looking for things that are framed in a mission context, and we're not looking for incremental development. So um, we take those 300 and we get it down to about 100 that we invite for full proposal. Full proposal uh, for step A is about eight pages. So it's still a pretty short proposal. We, we try to make it as easy as possible to propose to the program. We're all about uh, open eligibility. And those 100 proposals for step B go through scientific technical review panels with subject matter experts that we bring in from around the country. And then we take those results, integrate them, and consider programmatic balance and other considerations and bring it forward to our selection official. Do you have uh, a, uh, a group of the regular nuts that supply things that never have a chance of getting it, but they just know about it and try anyway? So we have lots of people that propose each time, and many of those 
after many tries, actually get funded. We, we're also thrilled to see, um, at least the last couple of years, that about half of those proposers, of those 300 proposals, are coming in from new proposers to NIAC. So we are continuing to grab you know, more people in the community and expanding the community, which we're very happy with. And one final question I had is just something that's personally intriguing, and that is the sustainment of human life for the eventual Mars mission, which is months and months, I guess, one way because you can't go even 20% of the speed of light to get to Mars, <laughs> you know, some fraction thereof. So people have to live and thrive you know, for that period of time. What is it? I think a, a year and a half or something. I forget the exact time. But it's definitely not a few hours like it is to get to the moon a couple of days. Do you get ideas on that issue? We do, actually. Part of the, the way to solve that issue is to go fast. So you know, the NASA is looking at nuclear thermal propulsion now. And uh, one of the concepts we had was uh, an augmented nuclear thermal rocket, which could actually uh, increase your uh, exhaust velocity, your specific impulse, to get you there uh, in about half the time that it would take now, uh, which is still a long time, but not quite as bad as, you know, a year and a half. And we're also just currently funded a study called, well, it's, it's basically a torpor study using small animals. And the idea here is to evaluate how torpor going into hibernation affects metabolism, uh, radiation resistance, things like that. And their goal is to uh, basically develop a facility that could eventually fly on something like the space station. We do long duration, expo- uh, long duration testing of small animals to evaluate uh, how torpor affects uh, metabolism, you know, radiation resistance, things like that on a long duration mission that could then be applied to, uh, to human missions. So it wouldn't be like Sigourney Weaver waking up <laughs> when there's the a monster on board or something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was torpor. In my act, we often like to say that we're science fiction to science fact. So uh, we're taking those early steps in cases like that towards eventual, hopefully, capabilities like you see in the movies. All right. Well, there's a lot of people that walk around in torpor right here on Earth, so maybe it could benefit NASA (laughs) at some point in space. John Nelson is deputy executive, and Mike LaPointe is acting program executive for the NASA Innovative Concepts Program. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate the time, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information about the awardees at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.